time you need auto parts and accessories, trust the parts professionals at the 31 Cincinnati area O'Reilly Auto Parts stores. Our professional parts people know what it takes to get the job done right. Professionals have counted on O'Reilly Auto Parts for decades. Now you can too. Professional parts people, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. Um, later in the hour after our interview, I'll be joined uh, hopefully by my co-host, uh, Naomi, uh, from Southern California, and uh, um, that'll be in the second half of the hour, but... Uh, Tonight our guest is, uh, we have a pre-recorded interview with Alan G. Johnson. Um, he is a nonfiction author, a novelist, sociologist, public speaker, and workshop presenter who has devoted most of his work, most of his working life to understanding the human condition, especially in relation to issues of social justice rooted in gender, race, and social class. Um, He has spoken at more than 200 universities, colleges, corporations, and other organizations around the country in 39 different states. Um, And most of what our discussion will focus on, he's the author of several books, including uh, Power, Privilege, and Difference, which I actually used when I was a PA for an undergraduate course in sociology, used it as one of the texts for the course. But the book we're going to talk about tonight is his latest book, which is called Not From Here, and it's a personal exploration, personal memoir, uh, somewhat of his of his life and his family's life, and after his father's passing, where to bury the, uh, um, where to put the ashes. But uh, more importantly, it's also he also explores the meaning of being white in North America. So it's it's a sociological text with some political implications and also a personal memoir of his. Um, but I, I won't uh, say more about that because I have the interview and we'll cover it in that. So uh, without further ado, it's Alan G. Johnson is our guest, and here's here's my interview with him earlier. Tonight our guest on Liberal Fix Radio is Alan Johnson. Alan is a, a sociologist and, uh, and an author, and uh, his latest book is called Not From Here, a Memoir, and... Uh, it's a very interesting and compelling book. I think many of our listeners will um, find uh, the topic interesting, but uh, I'll introduce uh, Alan now. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm fine, Keith. How are you? Wonderful. I'm doing well. And so uh, your book, your newest book, Not From Here, a Memoir, was uh, born the moment your father said to you, it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't matter, it makes no difference at all, where his ashes should be scattered after his death. And why did he say that, or, or how did that come about? Well, I, I asked him a couple of years before he died at the age of 93 um, what seemed like an obvious question. And um, I was a little startled that he said it made no difference, but I, I wasn't particularly bothered by it. He was uh, a man who traveled all over the world, had lived in a number of countries. He spent most of his professional life in the U.S. Foreign Service, uh, was fluent in I don't know three three or four languages, so in many ways it it didn't strike me as as, um, as um, strange that he would give a response like that. It was only in in the years that followed when I still had his ashes in a little box in my house and felt that I had to do something with them. I couldn't just leave them for my children to take care of when I was gone, and so that plagued my mind for quite a while, and then. As I thought about the question of, well, where would I put them, because I had no idea, it occurred to me that I didn't know where I would ask my children to place my ashes when I died. So I wound up uh, taking a road trip across the upper Midwest, basically following my father's early life. Uh, I started in South Dakota, 
which is where he uh, went to high school. And then I worked back through Minnesota, where he was born, and wound up in Iowa eventually, where his father was born and his, uh, his grandparents, my great-grandparents, uh, settled as farmers after emigrating from Norway. Uh, I, I found the book uh, interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, as, as the listeners know, I'm also a sociologist, but on top of that, I'm also of Norwegian descent and was born and grew up in Minnesota. So the, the journey across the upper Midwest um, kind of uh, uh, is a familiar one to me, although certainly you uncovered some things that uh, probably people don't uh, talk about much in the upper Midwest, but, uh, I mean, things that underlie our history and what's going on there. Um, I was going to mention, um, also you mentioned your mother's ash scattering request made some 13 years prior to your father's passing was, was in some ways more satisfying. In what ways? Because she told us what she wanted us to do with them. So it removed the question of where to put them. My father not giving me any guidance made it difficult because it forced me to confront the fact that I didn't know where his ashes belonged. And related to that, even more importantly for me, I didn't know where I belonged. So with my mother, those questions simply didn't come up because she... Uh, she told us what she wanted us to do. Uh, so it, it, I never wound up in that conundrum of not knowing and having that question uh, not letting me alone. One thing you imagined uh, trying to explain, at one point you imagined trying to explain your father's uh, indifference to where he was buried to, say, Israelis and Palestinians or Bosnians, Native Americans, for whom place itself is so central to their identity. Um, why, why did you do that thought experiment in your mind? Because it, it, it seemed to me that uh, people who have a sense of rootedness in place uh, would, would uh, be totally befuddled by someone who was indifferent to that question. I think you have to be an American, by which I mean anyone other than a Native American. You have to be an American to not be bothered by that, and that's why I wasn't bothered by that. The idea that uh, central to our identity is our uh, identification with a particular people who have a particular relationship to place, to land, that idea is one that I only realized in taking this journey is one that, that's um, foreign to American culture. We don't think about land in that way. We don't uh, my impression, at least, is we don't look at, at, a, at land. By land, I mean actual land, you know, dirt, mountains, rivers. We don't look at places and see ourselves reflected back in them in the way that indigenous people, I think, have always done. We don't look at ourselves and one another and have, as part of what we see, some land, some place reflected in the people that we see. So that connection to land is... Uh, almost completely absent, as far as I can tell, in this country. I mean, people may have an attachment to a place. Uh, farms may be passed down across generations and so on, but that's a different kind of belonging than the belonging that I discovered when I set off on what was almost a 2,000-mile road trip uh, by myself, uh, a kind of belonging that I realized I didn't have and longed for but couldn't find. And if I, had not, if I had not been provoked, if you will, into that journey, I don't think I would have discovered what I don't have, and which, um, as far as I can tell, no one in this country has, except for very recent immigrants, first-generation immigrants, and Native Americans. For everyone else, there is this powerful disconnect. So for me, if I go back in my father's lineage, if I go back to my great-grandparents, they clearly saw themselves as Norwegian because they emigrated from Norway. And somehow they were able to pass that to my father because he saw himself as a Norwegian. But the handoff failed when it came to my generation. I, I'm not Norwegian. There's no way I could go to Norway and be accepted as Norwegian. And this, is, this disconnect, I think, is true for everyone in this country who is not indigenous to this place. Go back uh, enough generations, and you reach a point where for all the generations prior to that, they are from some place, and that place defines them as a people and who they are. But for all the generations that came after, they, we belong nowhere. 
We have no such place. And I think that has characterized the, the entire history of this country, going all the way back to the, the 1600s, uh, when the, the first settlers came from Europe. I think that's very true. And um, one thing, too, I wanted to mention or talk about is your professional work as a sociologist, focusing as it has for many years on the issues of white privilege, uh, inequality and oppression, gender and race. Um, because of that, that certainly shaped what you saw in your travels and how you perceived it. In what ways? What I realized, Keith, was that although in many ways this trip was a, was a personal one, it was about me and it was about my father and fulfilling what I felt was an obligation to him, and then it became a journey of discovering for me uh, uh, the, the importance of place and belonging. But what I came to realize um, is that my personal story, like all of our personal stories, is embedded in a much larger story that is uh, larger in the sense of, of being uh, applying to the whole society, but also the entire history of this society. So I'm driving across land that I, I, I start connecting in my mind to what I know about what happened on this land, what I, from what, to what I know about the people whose land this was, and I know how it was taken from them. So they had an indigenous connection to land. And that was forcibly taken away from them. So the farther I went, and especially when I got into South Dakota, um, I, I could not escape the realization that I was on land that had been stolen. And I was part of the group whose, whose lineage goes back to the stealing of that land. And as an American today, I am part of a society in which what was done to Native Americans then uh, is current. It's not just a matter of history. Uh, the, the, the United States, for example, uh, uh, stole the, the Black Hills from the Lakota Sioux. Uh, the United States entered into a, a treaty between nations by which the Black Hills were not uh, reserved for the, the Lakota f uh, for, until the white people decided they wanted it. it. The word forever was used. There was no limit on it. And yet when, when George Armstrong Custer took his army into the Black Hills and found gold, the United States changed its mind as it did more than 400 times in treaties that it made with Native American nations. There was not one treaty that the United States made with Native American nations that we did not break. So I'm traveling across land looking for a place that might speak to me in some way and say, yes, here it is, this is where your father belongs, and perhaps by some miracle, this is where you also belong. Because it made no sense to me that the father would belong someplace where the son would not. And I cannot escape the larger story in which my father's life is embedded, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, going all the way back through my lineage. My mother's first uh, ancestors in North America came here in the mid-1600s. And that entire, that entire story, if you will, of which my story is a part, is embedded in that larger story. And so I realized when I went to my great-grandparents' farm in Thor, Iowa, for example, that there was a history that made that land available to them. To buy. And regardless of what they knew of that history at the time, that's what made it possible for them to establish roots in North America. So I could not separate my, uh, my experience of that land, my experience of going through the house that my great-grandparents had built and lived in, as moving as it was for me, I could not separate that out from the history in which that story was embedded. And um, I know, too, another example you connect the land your relatives farmed in Wisconsin, for example, with the slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries and the expulsion of Native peoples prior to that. And how how do those links inform both your connection to your ancestors as well as your uh, experience, uh, as well as how you experience the present day? It makes it very complicated. I think all of us want to feel good about our ancestors. Uh, all of us, I think, can't help but feel that in some way we are an extension of them. So we want to feel that they were good people. Uh, we want to feel that they were involved only in good things. And as I and I don't know that that my ancestors engaged in horrible things. But I have to I have to think some of them did at least on my mother's side. They go all the way back to the 1600s and and what was done to Native Americans in New England. 
so if I'm going to, if I, the question becomes, how do I embrace my lineage? How do I uh, identify myself as in that line, given what I know about the whole history of their being on this continent? And I think one of the dilemmas that that brings up, that I hear a lot about in my work um, on issues of, of race, is that uh, many people seem to think that we have, a, we have to choose between either uh, unconditionally loving our country and saying that it's just the best thing and there's nothing wrong with it, or hating our country, uh, bashing it, and so on, and that there's, there's, no other, there's no third alternative. And what comes up for me is the question, well, what does it mean to love your country? What does it mean to love your ancestors? And my response to that, Keith, is that I, I would respond the same way that I would if I, if I were to say, well, what would it mean for somebody to love me? And I know that I would not want someone to love me simply for the good parts, simply for the things that I feel good about. Real love to me is when you love someone whole. You love them whole, which means you accept the parts that are, you don't care for and you accept the parts that you're crazy about. And I think it's no different with, with nations and with, with lineages. I think that a, a true love, to, to truly love this country, I think means that we love it whole. We don't just love the parts that make us feel good. We find a way to embrace all of it. And I experience a tremendous amount of denial in this country around this subject. We seem to be extremely sensitive about any kind of criticism of the United States, as if that means we can't also uh, have feelings, for example, of pride. And I think it's a false choice. And I think that this journey in many ways uh, called upon me to engage in a level of acceptance of the real, the whole real story, not only of my ancestors, but of all of our ancestors and the history that brought us to the, to the present day. And that's the second part of your question. And my sense about that is that I came away from this trip feeling a profound sense of obligation to my ancestors, that I'm, they're gone now, I'm here, I'm alive, I have a life to live, I have choices to make as someone who has inherited this legacy that I think I've been describing. And I think that it calls upon me to do what I can in my own small way to make it right. Whatever it was that they did, uh, whatever it was that they participated in, whether they knew it at the time or not, I have an obligation to do what I can as the latest generation to make it right. So in terms of issues of social justice, um, in, the, in terms of this trip, trip most particularly in terms of Native Americans, but I think this also applies to our whole history uh, with all peoples of color, especially African Americans, I feel a sense of obligation in the present not only to those groups of people as a citizen of this country, but it's also a sense of obligation to my ancestors. Um, and one thing I, I guess you've already alluded to to some extent, but I wanted to flesh it out a little bit further. Um, I, I think you make the argument that our country's rootlessness, sort of the lack of place and our lack of connection, actually has made us dangerous to Native peoples. And I think you also argue that continues to make us dangerous to our neighbors as well as to ourselves. Um, could you elaborate on that? If you look at the history of this country, it's a history of a people who have a certain restlessness. Uh, and I think it still continues today. Um, there's a certain wandering restlessness um, in the United States. And I think that it comes in part, no small part, out of the fact that we don't belong here and we have never belonged here. And if you do not have a, an indigenous relation to land, then land becomes not something that is sacred, which it is for indigenous peoples, including Native Americans. Land becomes mere real estate. That's my experience of this, or the culture we're living in and, and the culture that has governed for the whole history of this country. Land is just property. It is something to be owned, conquered, taken away, exploited. You build your house on it. You, you cultivate crops on it, whatever it is. You mine it. Now we're fracking it. Um, if you view land as, if you view a mountain as, as sacred, you do not blow the top of it off in order to get coal out of it. You, it just doesn't occur to you to do with, with, with something that you regard as sacred. So 
our whole history has been one of disconnection from land in that way, a disidentification with land so that we can go anywhere. And we did. You know, we went, uh, we went uh, first we went across the Appalachians. We kept going west, and we kept pushing people off their land because it looked good to us. We wanted it. And when we got to California, we didn't stop. We wound up, you know, trying to take the Philippines as a colony, as a gateway to Asia. Except they didn't want to let us do it. They wanted, they wanted to govern themselves, and we killed a lot of Filipinos trying to uh, make them submit to us. That's the way in which I think we have made ourselves and continue because we're so unaware of our, our lack of belonging and how that conditions us. I think it makes us dangerous to people who inhabit land that they are indigenous to because we don't see any difference. When, when, uh, when, when uh, white people went to, to, especially farther west, and they encountered huge tracts of land that were inhabited by Native American tribes, but they, they weren't using every acre of that land. And the, the, the United States said to them, you know, you're not using this, so give it to us, sell it to us, or if you won't give it or sell it to us, then we'll, unfortunately we'll have to take it. So there was this sense that it was just real estate. And if you take the Cherokee out of the Carolinas and Georgia and you march them to Oklahoma, from our worldview, it's just another bit of land. We'll give you another bit of land. And we could do that, that really monstrous thing, from the point of view of indigenous people, we could do that because it meant nothing to us. It was just real estate. And I think that makes us dangerous. Yeah, definitely. And and with you mentioned earlier how people, I think, in this country tend to be defensive or sort of, you know, I mean, any criticism is, is they try to gloss over the bad parts of the history and try to sort of um, avoid criticism. And we certainly see that with, I mean, some of the contemporary debates, even like the Confederate flag issue, where people are kind of defensive about trying to bring up anything bad about Southern history, anything they might have done wrong. It's just heritage. You know, there's nothing bad in that heritage or whatever, but how do we initiate a dialogue about injustices committed long ago and, and up to the present day? Um, how can we do that? How can we get past the defensiveness maybe towards more understanding? Part of it, I think, as I mentioned before, um, part of it is that we have to get over this notion that we either love it or hate it and that there's no middle ground. Uh, if we love it or we hate it, neither one is grounded in reality. Both are grounded in just a piece of reality. So what seems essential to me is that uh, since denial is not a good life strategy, we have to start living in reality. And the reality is that the history of this country is very complicated. The reality also is that the things that we're wrestling with that continue into the present are things that we didn't start we didn't create. They come out of history. The history is living in the present. The past is present. Faulkner said, actually, that, there, that the past doesn't exist. Everything is present. But if we think about the past as something that we didn't create, in some ways, Keith, I hear your question as being, um, how, do we, how do we take responsibility for things that we didn't create, that we didn't do? And I think that's part of being a citizen of a country. I think that's, part, I think that's one step toward some kind of belonging. If I, if I say, well, everything that's history that's past is not about me because I didn't do it, so I, I have no relation to it, but that then means I have no relation to the Constitution of the United States or the legacy of the Revolutionary War or, or any, uh, any of the other defining uh, moments in the history of this country that we will often point to with pride. So if I have an obligation, which I believe I do, to attend to, to be responsible to, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, which happened hundreds of years ago and I had nothing to do with, if I have an obligation to attend to and be responsible to the legacy of the Revolutionary War and all of the ideals that drove that, if I have a responsibility to all those things that I had nothing to do with, then of course I have, I am, I have to be responsible to all of the things that are terrible. They are no less real and they no less belong to me as a citizen of this country. I either take it whole, or I, I think I, it seems to me I have no basis for calling myself an American. If I get to pick and choose, if I get to say, well, I'm only going to identify with and, and, and embrace the things that I like, and I'm going to just 
ignore the rest. I don't understand how I call myself an American because America is the sum total of all of those things, the things that make us feel proud and the things that make us want to turn away and deny that they ever happened. So the, the, the mental gymnastics of, well, I didn't do this or my relatives didn't do this themselves, I think chops, the, chops America up into all these little pieces and, and, and you get to pick the ones. It's like that bowl of Halloween candy when you're done going around. You know, you, the kid, you pick out just the pieces you like. I don't think that's any way to have a country. I don't think that's any way to behave as a citizen of a country. And I certainly don't think that's a way to behave as a descendant of all kinds of lineages out of which the present and the past both have come. And I think that is true for everyone on this continent who is not either Native American or a very recent arrival. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting, too. I, th I think you're right in the sense that people, I think Americans like to claim, you know, they like to say, oh, my, you know, I didn't personally own slaves or I didn't kick people off their land or whatever. But, but they don't usually say, well, I had nothing to do with writing the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. I mean, they, they kind of want to claim the parts of the heritage that supposedly make America exceptional or make it, you know, the shining beacon of democracy or whatever, um, you know, half mythologies that they want to engage in. We, we tend to want to uh, take credit for um, the good things our ancestors might have done, so to speak, but, but to sort of ignore anything negative and I, I think you're right if, if we're going to if we're going to um, we can't pick and choose I mean we sort of either have to embrace our heritage or or distance ourselves from it but it makes more sense to embrace the totality of it than to sort of say well you know I want to claim this part of my heritage but I don't want to have anything to do with anything bad that ever was done in my name or, or by my ancestors or my nation I also think Keith in a way it's dishonest to say, I'm going to feel proud about good things that I had nothing to do with. Sure. But I refuse to feel bad about bad things that I had nothing to do with. And my defense against feeling bad will be, well, I had nothing to do with it. We can't say, we can't claim things that we had nothing to do with and then disown other things because we said we had nothing to do with those. It's not honest to do it that way. Right, if we're I going agree. to feel pride if we're going to feel proud proud about things we didn't do, then we also have to be willing to feel bad about things we didn't do and I think there's also a, an ethic in this country that says you're never supposed to feel bad i mean it's 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 impossible to be aware of the history of this country and not feel bad about it about parts of it. I don't know how it's possible not to feel bad. I was doing a a training once, um, I think I was in Nebraska or Oklahoma, about race, and um, the participants were making lists of uh, how white privilege actually manifests itself in the work that they do. And I was walking around among these various groups of white people mostly who were doing these lists, and a white man sort of pulled me aside and he said, <clears throat> you're just trying to make us feel bad, aren't you? And I said, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. That's not why I came here. But I don't see how it's possible to look at the reality of these things and not feel bad. It's appropriate to feel bad about it. If someone who is, if you, someone you love dies, it's appropriate to feel bad about that. If there is some tremendous loss in your life, it's appropriate to feel bad. There'd be something problematic if we didn't. Well, this is a huge loss. What I discovered out in the plains in my little car in the silence and solitude of my journey what I discovered was there was something I was longing for that I didn't even know I didn't have until I went looking for it with my father's ashes and my knapsack on the floor of the car. I didn't even know I didn't have it. So when I came home, I brought home with me a huge sense of loss that is a loss that has been passed down across generations in this country in one form or another to just about all of us. And it's not a loss that's going to be fixed. There's no Disney ending to this journey. It's a real loss. And like any real loss, the death of someone you love or getting in an accident and losing your sight so that you'll never see again, like any real loss, there is a question that we're left with, which was, is what now? So what do we do now? If we are a people who have inherited such a profound loss, well, we're still here. 
We have our lives to live. We have a country. What are we going to do with that? I think that's a really hard question. But I think the alternative, which is to live in denial and unreality, is much more dangerous, not only to others, but to ourselves. I think a lot of the pathologies that I see in this country, the amount of loneliness and isolation, the kind of almost frantic attempt to keep going, to move as fast as we can, texting, cell phones, all of that, trying to have as much stimulation as we can to avoid the kind of stillness that I encountered out there on the plains. Because it is in that kind of stillness that we discover questions that otherwise get drowned out by all the noise. And I had no place to run and hide. When I, I, I realized when I got home that not once in those 10 days and almost 2,000 miles, not once did it even occur to me to turn on the radio in the car or plug in my iPod. It didn't even occur to me. I was in, so I was, I was inhabiting a kind of space that's very hard to find in this country, such solitude and such silence over such a long period of time. And I think that's something that our society seems organized to avoid. And I think it's very dangerous to our well-being. And if, if there's a takeaway for me from that trip, it is that in allowing ourselves to sit, really sit with such profound questions, we, of course, will disturb ourselves. But on the other side of that is the potential to f discover, both as individuals and as a society, who we really are. Yeah, and I, I think it's fascinating, too, that um, this is probably kind of an aside, but that you had no desire to turn the radio on because uh, when, whenever I drive in, the, in a city or through the suburbs or on an interstate highway, I usually have the radio on. But I do find myself, when I'm in uh, remote parts of Montana or Wyoming on, on gravel roads, that I almost instinctively turn off the radio because it feels like it doesn't, belong on like, like I want to even though I'm still in a vehicle I sort of want to commune with nature or maybe I want to hear what's outside if I have the windows rolled down you know the end of the noise might drown it out but there's some sense that that in certain places that there should be solitude or silence and that the radio feels almost out of place in places like that and so I, I found that interesting that you mentioned that and finding out who we are requires listening I think that's really important. And listening requires a certain stillness in our minds, in our hearts. Listening is, listening is hard work. And I put myself in an environment without knowing it at first. I didn't know that was what was going to happen. I put myself in an environment in which I really had no choice but to listen. And when I would stop and get out of the car, there might be no sound but the wind or not even that. And out of that silence came an awareness that I was waiting for the land itself to somehow speak to me, which had never occurred to me before. Yeah, and, and bringing it back, I guess, sort of full circle to yourself, I know a couple things. Um, you, you've lived in the same, I guess, uh, homestead in the northwest part of Connecticut for for 16 years now, but but that isn't really a home. Why why would that not be home, so to speak? Well, actually, I've, I we've lived I've lived in Connecticut for more than 40 years, actually. So it's a really oh. most of my life. Most of my life, um, it is my home in the sense that um, this is where my house is. You know, I'm I'm sitting downstairs in my house in my the room where I do all my writing, and I'm looking out into the we live in the woods, and it's extraordinarily beautiful and watching the sun setting um, so this is where I always come back this is where I return to so in that sense this is very much my home but it's not the kind of home that I was looking for out on the Great Plains um, I do not belong to any recognizable people with a capital P there is no American people uh, in the sense that my father could have been in any gathering of Norwegians and felt himself to be among his people. That's not true for people in the United States. There are all kinds of places and groups of people where I would feel not at all at home in the United States. The fact that we all might speak English, that doesn't do it. And besides, we're not English even, even though that's our language. So that 
this place that I really love. I mean, my wife Nora and I have lived here for 23 years now. We that we had this house built on this land. Um, I have very strong feelings for this place, but it's not what I'm from. Uh, my people. There's no people that I belong to who are from this place, who identify who they are in relation to this place. So I don't belong here any more than I belonged in South Dakota or Iowa or Minnesota, no more than I belonged in the place where I wound up putting my father's ashes. He didn't belong where I put his ashes. It was as close as I could get to where he might belong, but I had no illusions. I was planting him in a place uh, that wasn't his place. It wasn't the place of his people with a capital P. So I, my sense is that many people in the United States have strong ties to the places where they were born, the places where they live. I don't deny that at all. But what I discovered was that there is a kind of belonging that's much more powerful than that, that for the most part, growing up in the United States, we have no idea even exists. I think that's true, and I, I know you mentioned, for example, that your grandfather, born in Norway, immigrated to the U.S. Um, as an adult and, and lived and died, presumably knowing himself to be Norwegian. And your father um, was born and raised in a in a very Norwegian community in Iowa, so he basically knew where he was from. Um, but that sense of belonging, I think, was lost by the time it reached your generation. And is there any hope of regaining such things or, or compensating for the loss, or is that just something that's gone for good? I don't think there's any way of knowing. I, 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 part, of my, what I, part of what I want to say when I hear you say that question, Keith, is no. This is a real loss. In, this, in the same sense that if I, as I said before, if I lost my sight, I could, I could you know, spend every day trying to figure out a way to get it back. But at some point, I would have to accept that, no, that's the way it is. I'm not going to be able to see anymore. If I'm going to have a life at any rate, um, at some point, as with many people who have suffered such losses, they have to come to terms with that. And they may still wake up every morning. In the first, I imagine if I lost my sight, I, the first thing I would be aware of in the, every morning when I woke up was, oh, I, I'm opening my eyes, but I can't see. I don't know what it looks like out the window. And that's a, that's a really, I'm sure that is an incredibly hard thing to live. But people do. They do all the time. Um, and, and, and that said, uh, th th when I stepped off the plane coming home, the journey I took out there didn't really end. I'm still on it now. I don't know where this is going to go. But I do have a, a very strong belief that my continuing on with my life, with the knowledge that I brought back with me from that journey, is very different than if I had not gone out there. If, that, if, if I had not discovered so profoundly and disturbingly uh, the loss that had been passed on to me as a member of this society. And so I believe that it's important then to go forward in my life with that awareness and that that is going to change how I see what's possible. I don't know what's possible for this country. I don't know that we're doomed or anything like that as individuals or collectively, but I am absolutely convinced that whatever possibility there is for us depends on our living in the reality of what has been and how that continues in the present. And uh, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. I, I think um, um, it, this is such compelling stuff. At least I find it interesting, and I'm sure many of our listeners will will as well. Um, is there any uh, where they where they can go for information or to order the book? I'll put up links um, um, on our uh, on our web page um, so that people can order directly through there. Click on them. But any other um, spots where they can go, maybe to follow you online or. or um, any other I would, places? Uh, I, would, I would send them to my blog, which is uh, agjohnson.wordpress.com, and there is a link there to my website. And there are writings that are relevant to this uh, this whole area on both places in both places. 
Wonderful. Yeah, and I'll put a link up for that as well so people can access it. I'm sure there will be people who take an interest in that. And So, again, I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out on a on a Friday afternoon or evening to uh, talk to us. And, and uh, again, the book is called Not From Here, a memoir. Um, our guest is Alan Johnson, and it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Keith. It was a pleasure for me, too. And that was our guest, uh, was Alan G. Johnson, a sociologist and author of Not From Here, a memoir. And so I um, hope you enjoyed that interview. And uh, we are about uh, 40 minutes past the hour. And uh, with the final 20 minutes, uh, my co-host Naomi is here. I believe she's here. Are you there, Naomi? I am here. How are you? Oh, very good. Yes, I'm doing well also. And so that was a pre-recorded was a, interview. Oh, It was great. It was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it covers a lot of territory, both literally and figuratively, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's certainly interesting stuff. Um, and I thought, uh, well, that interview, we I did the pre, uh, interviewed him last Friday, and then we, we had another guest on for the evening show. So um, uh, we carried that over to this week, so hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. And I... I know there's been a ton of news that's happened since then, um, so I thought with the remaining minutes we might uh, um, delve into that a little bit. Of course, uh, for our listeners, too, uh, I think everybody everybody on the sort of liberal progressive side of the community, at least the ones that get cable TV, is probably missing Jon Stewart today. <laughs> he won't be around next week, so that was, of course, a big news story of the week, and I hope people got to see the his send-offs and, and all that. Um, but there are two other things I think that are, are uh, stories that probably are in some people's minds. Um, the the Republican debates yesterday, which we can talk about a little later. But but today also the uh, the uh, James Holmes sentencing. Oh, oh, and I was going to try not to use his name, but anyways, the Aurora shooter was sentenced um, uh, to life imprisonment rather than getting the death penalty, which I think will. Um, you know, whatever else you think of the death penalty, um, and I'm sort of philosophically against it, but if there is uh, cases where it should be applied, this would seem like a, a perfect example. I mean, there's no doubt about the individual's guilt um, or the depravity of the act and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, and then there's all kinds of other issues here. I know Colorado isn't a state that particularly awesome that juries go for the death penalty, so that's working there. But, you know, you kind of have to wonder, too, if, if the suspect had been a person of color, if the jury wouldn't have just um, given him that sentence in a nanosecond. And, and, you know, it doesn't... For the families of the victims, I, I think, even though there's no way to bring back the the lost individual, I think somehow, had had they given him the ultimate penalty, there would have been some kind of closure there. So... So a little bit, uh, I don't know what to say about the verdict today except, or the sentencing except that, um, you know, certainly something that I could see people would have reason to be upset about. Your thoughts, Naomi? Uh, I'm mixed as well. Uh, I can't imagine um, what it would be like to, to hear that sentencing um after you've already gone through so much and maybe you're hopeful for the death penalty and it, does, it doesn't come down to that. But on one hand, like you said, um, I'm not usually for the death penalty. I, I agree with you that there uh, are some circumstances where, you know, DNA is helpful or things are, more investigation is helpful. Sometimes the wrong person is in jail, things like that. We've had that discussion before. But in this case, you know, he was absolutely guilty um he he was the one that did it and it was no no one else it was him um but maybe in this instance I, I don't know the death penalty may have um dragged on appeals it may have been more costly uh he wouldn't you know maybe he would it would just keep it going on the thread would just keep going this way uh they know that uh no more appeals that's it it's it's done um he'll have his formal sentencing i believe next month and uh so if anything i think 
the least of it was that he was he was found guilty of all the counts um and i know that must be of some relief um as far as the sentencing you know only one it had to be unanimous so obviously one or more a minimum of one had to say be a holdout on the death penalty so that um the law is that they have to rule it as life um in prison without parole so if they if the jury could not reach a unanimous decision then that's the law of the court that they had to give life without parole so that's obviously what happened there was at least one person that said no um and they have their reasons but i think the main thing is that uh he is was found guilty and uh he is not going to be set out so hopefully there will be no notoriety from this we'll never hear from him or see from him again i hope that you know Years later, he's not get granted interviews. I hope that there aren't any books about him. It's over. Uh, he doesn't deserve uh, any any more airtime, any more um, focus on him. The focus should be on the families if they, you know, if, if they want it, if they grant interviews, etc. Otherwise, um, they're grieving. This this will never be over for them. Um, you don't have a, a time on this. This it just is. This is their new normal. Um, the grieving never stops. The pain never goes away. So hopefully um, they will just find more days with peace than sorrow. And that's um, that's all I have to say for for the sentence, sentencing today. Yeah, and I, and I think that was well said. I, I agree with that. Um, and I thought on the final note um I, I don't usually like to to bounce around on topics for a show but but i think because it's so fresh in people's minds um that a lot of people might want to hear at least a little bit of our take on on yesterday's republican debate and i and i mean mostly the 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 primetime debate not the kiddies table debate i could care less who who's running 11th place right now <laughs> you know, i guess you it's probably you, you, you might hop into the top 10 but <laughs> You don't want to hear who was passing the salt and pepper on the children's table at Thanksgiving? <laughs> no. I, when I won a junior varsity cross-country race in, in high school, I never got my name in the paper. So, you know, I, I just, you know, I had to get promoted to varsity, and then I got my name in the paper even if I finished 20th. So, so um, you know, well, there's two I, different stages there. <laughs> there was a friend of, a mutual friend of ours, <clears throat> excuse me, and she posted on her Facebook page when she said, what am I watching? This isn't even the real debate. What What's going on? With, what am I watching? <laughs> you know, it was the, the, both, you know, Group A and B were, I guess Group B was more the more comical of the two, but Group A I had is, issues with many things, but go ahead, I'll let you start. <laughs> oh, sure. And so, so uh, anyways, I, I thought it was a, uh, Interesting. It looked like, um, well, first of all, it looked like the Fox um, news panel uh, got the word from Roger Ailes to go after Trump right away. Um, so, so they had their guns blazing for him. But I'm not sure what they did was effective because, in some way, um, well, I don't know. Trump is a creation of the Fox mentality. Just insulting people is is kind of what they do. <laughs> so, it's, so now they're upset that they've you know sort of unleashed the monster and he's out there. Um, you know, doing a scorched earth policy where he's going to ruin the Republicans' chances, um, whatever. You know, I mean that that's kind of something they created. Well, but but I, I didn't want to talk just about Trump. I wanted to talk about, um, in my opinion, there was what two hours, two plus hours of the debate, and there was only one minute and about one minute and ten seconds of sanity, and that's when Ohio Governor John Kasich uh, made a fairly eloquent. Um, defense of the Medicaid expansion in this state, basically defense of Obamacare and a defense of health care for the working poor and for people who have mental health issues and people with disabilities and people who don't have a lot of money to pay for their health insurance. So I thought that was the highlight uh, from my perspective. But, of course, in the Republican primaries, when you start flirting with sanity, that's kind of the kiss of death. I mean, we saw what happened to John Huntsman in 2012. I mean, he's not going anywhere, probably, although, you know, 
he did get some applause there, but I think it's because it was in Cleveland, so they just liked him standing up for, you know, he's their governor, and they know that he's conservative on other issues, and he was fairly forceful in his defense. Um, the other thing that stood out for me, and then I'll get to your impressions too, is, uh, is um, and a poll bore that out today. Gravis Marketing did a poll of who people thought won the debate and who they thought lost, and, and Ben Carson floated at the top for who won the debate. Uh, I didn't really see that, but that's how people went what? with it. I suppose it was his closing statement about surgery or something. Where um, I don't know, um, <laughs> but he got the most votes. I think Donald Trump had the second, but he has also the second most votes for who lost the debate. So he continues to be a very polarizing figure. Um, but but people almost the most likely person that they said lost the debate was Rand Paul. And I think Rand Paul really just came across as petty and irritated and cranky, and he got in a fight with Chris Christie at the beginning. He interrupted Trump and and got in a fight with him and tried to tie him to Hillary Clinton, and then he, he went after Chris Christie for hugging Barack Obama, and he was just all over the place. And you know, and, and the other reason I think uh, Rand Paul didn't do well is, is um, a lot of people – give lip service in the Republican Party to libertarian ideas of, you know, personal liberty and stuff. But honestly, I think the exchange with Chris Christie on national security showed that when it comes down to real policy, Republicans will take, um, will will fall for fear over, or well, they'll take security over liberty any day. So I mean, fear wins out over their ideology. I mean, so, you know, Rand Paul should probably run in the Libertarian Party because Republicans like to talk like Libertarians, but when push comes to shove, they, they seem to, you know, ultimately cheer more for the guy who wants a police state than for the guy who says, uh, stop looking at our phone records. So, you know, Chris Christie won that exchange, even though I think... Rand Paul had the right position. I don't. I don't think he argued his position very well. But I, I, you know, I certainly am sympathetic to um, protecting us from excessive, um, you know, surveillance. But, <laughs> but I, I don't think most Republicans care that much. You know, they, they don't like Obama spying on us. But if it's George Bush, that's okay. So, but but right. did you have any impressions of the debate? Oh, I agree with you. Rand Paul was, you know, he rolled his eyes at at, at, at times, and he, yeah, he does come across very condescending, very uh, annoyed. Like you said, he's just very irritated. Seems very irritated, very impatient, um, just very annoyed. Uh, so, you know, there's no there's no sense of comfort, or I, I don't even I don't even absorb what he's saying because of the way he's saying it. So that kind of is counterproductive because I just tune him out because he just, you know, just such a cranky little toddler. Um, Trump, I, you know, I don't know what, I don't even know. He's, I, I don't know. I, I, first of all, I can't, you know, he stands in his facial expressions and just nods his head up and down, up and down. And, uh, I don't know. I don't have a, I don't have a sense of comfort with him either. You know, like you said, John Henson was the last Republican that I was actually pretty uh, concerned with. He was the last Republican that I have actually felt, hmm, he could be in this. Um, and actually someone that I felt like, okay, if he won, I might be okay with that. You know, I, I think I would be okay. Um, but he's the last one. Nobody that I saw last night, or yeah, last night was gave me that feeling. Um, that nothing was said that helped me at all with uh, gun control, uh, with gun sense. Uh, nothing at all was said uh, that encouraged me with that area. Of course, nothing encouraged me as far as women's rights. Um, so I, I wasn't encouraged by it. I, I expected to hear what I heard. I, I think I, I was hopeful that I would hear somebody break from the pack, but they're all just in who's the you know the who's the race to the nuttiest at the top. Um, I, I really feel the the clear winner was the Democratic Party. Whoever comes out uh, on yeah, top well, of, I guess of that. Bernie Sanders. More people tweeted Bernie Sanders tweets during the debate than about any other candidate. So because yeah. and he yeah. said some of the things you said. He said I didn't hear anything about climate change or living wage or women's no rights mm -hmm. and, and stuff. And that's absolutely right. There were between the two debates there were seventeen people on the stage and now one person 
said anything about, you know, income inequality, climate change, gun sense, Mm -hmm. um, a whole slew of issues that, you know. And and then when they did talk about issues, I mean, Ted Cruz went after Planned Parenthood with both barrels. And and I I know the press has, has a thing for Marco Rubio, even even some people on the sort of center left or in the mainstream Washington Post writers and stuff. But but the thing I got out of the debate is Marco Rubio um is from the Todd Aiken wing of the Republican Party. I mean he basically Absolutely. said I mean, he basically said he said <clears throat> women who get pregnant from rape or incest should be forced to give to child birth. They shouldn't be allowed mm-hmm. to have, permitted to have an abortion. And so basically He's he's so dogmatically anti-choice that he doesn't even want women to have a choice, even though they had no choice. I mean, as far as getting right. pregnant, they had no choice. And and then he doubled right. down on that today on CNN. He said, no, that's his position. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing attractive about that position. I don't care what his humble upbringing was. I don't care um, how handsome he is or how he's a young, new face of the party. As far as I'm concerned, it's it's the same right-wing thing in, in a supposedly attractive package. We we had that with Ronald Reagan. I mean, he wasn't young, but he had everything else, you know, the charisma supposedly and stuff. But, you know, as long as they're ramming through policies that are destructive to women's rights, that are destructive to working working poor or working families, um, I'm not really interested in, in what other qualities they might have. I don't care what they look like or or, you know, how, how broad well, their smile you, is or where they grew up. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's like you like you and I have said before, Keith, you know, over and over again, they know who their audience is. They know who their voters are. And so they are oblivious to reality that is around them, which is climate change, which is jobs, which, you know, the different areas, immigration reform and voting, voters' rights, things like that are what's important to us. But they know that as soon as they mention abortions and no abortions and Planned Parenthood and, you know, going through with a pregnancy no matter what, that's what their key fringe voters, crazy conservatives, are going to list, are going to hear. That's the, you know, the ding, 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 ding that they're accustomed to, and that's what they're going to keep, you know, pummeling over and over and over Um because that's what sells, you know. This the anger, the yelling at each other, the you know they they were just you know uh, doing standoff with each other. Nothing got said, nothing was accomplished. I I felt wow, that's like what an hour, two hours of my life that I'll never get back. I, I don't think I can stomach. I, I don't think I can stomach it again. Um, so if, if you see that. If you saw if you saw the Republican debate and you watched the Democratic debate and you still think both parties are the same, I I I'm done. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Um, there's no way that you can look at those debates and say that both parties are equal. Um, so anyway, there is a list of dates and places for the uh, Democratic debates are coming up, so I'm excited about that and looking forward to to seeing uh, the Democrats. Uh, especially uh, Sanders and Clinton going head-to-head and and seeing the differences as well as the similarities. I I think they both have different approaches. Um, I think they have different... I think one... I think they're both fighting for the same cause, but one has, you know, his his push and the other, she has her push, her her priorities and his party. So it'll be interesting to see how we can, you know, hear them talk about everything but which is priority for one versus the other. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be nice to see a debate where I don't see all those strings about the Koch brothers were pulling. I think I could see Scott Walker they were moving his mouth, but maybe <laughs> maybe I just imagined that. But somewhere it felt like somebody was making him talk. But, no, I guess uh, on that note, we're about out of time. Uh, um, but, uh, again, I wanted to thank our guest uh, for the first half of the hour uh, for the pre-recorded interview. That was Alan G. Johnson. And I want to thank my co-host, Naomi, for her perspectives on the Republican debate in the uh, in the Aurora student uh, um, sentencing. And I want to thank all our listeners for listening again. We'll be here next week again. Um, I'll actually be in the Montana 
Democratic State Convention, but I'll try to maybe make a cameo on the show. But anyways, until we see you again next week or hear you again next week. Oh, oh, Keith. Oh, oh, go ahead. I'm I'm sorry, real quick, real quick. I I do want to give a quick shout-out to our friends Sandy and Lonnie uh, Phillips and to Karen and Tom Teeves, parents of uh, victims in the Aurora shooting theater shooting that we send our, our love and our best wishes to them on, on and all the Aurora families of survivors and victims today. Absolutely, and thank you for doing that. And Again, thank you to our and we'll catch you again uh, next week at the same time. Uh, thank you once again. Uh, drive safe and be kind to your neighbor. parts and accessories, trust the parts professionals at the 31 Cincinnati area O'Reilly Auto Parts stores. Our professional parts people know what it takes to get the job done right. Professionals have counted on O'Reilly Auto Parts for decades. Now you can too. Professional parts people, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs>